Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. So, are you ready to get started? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm Jess. I'm Sydney. And this, and this is, is Malpractice. malpractice. Pod- I couldn't say the word podcast today. <laughs> I said, this is Malpractice. But Podcast. <laughs> Pop popcorn, malpractice popcorn. Malpractice popcorn is that's all I've ever wanted. Truly, we should get some. Yeah, absolutely. I love popcorn so much. It sounds great. What's up? What's new? You know, just <laughs> thriving, thriving, surviving, really thriving and surviving. That's that is exactly what you're doing. Yeah, seriously. Getting um, things set up for your impending bebe. Things are set up. Things are. Things are ready to roll. Yep. Just a reminder, y'all, um, we're taking off May, but we'll have two episodes in June. Because Jess will be in the process of giving birth to a human being. And Sydney's going to start her job. And you need a break for both of those things. You do. So thank you for your patience. And if you're not patient, thank you for pretending. <laughs> if you're not patient, we have an extensive bat catalog that I suggest you check out over the last three years. Go listen. And also... Mind your business. Grow up. (laughs) (laughs) People have shit to do. Yeah, people do have shit to do. Like give birth. Yeah. I discovered that for some unlucky people, there. first of all, there is like a something that you can develop during pregnancy that's like extreme vomiting. And you have that for sure. <laughs> it also comes with like dizziness and stuff. So I don't know if I have that or what at what level on the spectrum of that I have, but my first trimester symptoms are identical to the second or the third trimester for me. Yeah. So we're back to that. And I feel like the second trimester was good, not great. Yeah, right? it was fine. There was still some vomiting. A lot of people have told me that the second trimester you feel really good. And I'm like, I happen to know a woman who. (laughs) (laughs) I know someone who says you're full of shit. (laughs) I happen to know someone who hates you. (laughs) Yeah, that is a fact. I don't even have to know you. I do hate you. Guarantee. If you say anything about how you feel great during your pregnancy or you feel magical or you feel beautiful, Jess wants to kill you. <laughs> the only magical moments are whenever the baby moves. That's cool. Yeah, that's super special. But that isn't all the moments. <laughs> yeah, that's not all the moments. And vomiting for you has been a lot of the moments. The blood vessels on my face, they might as well just like stay popped at this point. So... Not everyone is aware of this. Jess has been puking so hard that she has popped blood vessels in her eyes. Oh, yeah. Under my eyes, too. I didn't even know you could pop them under your eyes. I did not either. Well, you can. I am unwell. <laughs> I have done it today. <laughs> today. And yesterday. Right before this recording. Yeah. So if you're still not patient about the fact that we need time off, Jessica is popping blood vessels under her eyes. For you guys. <laughs> and there you go. And that's that. Sydney went to a really beautiful, fun, cool, amazing wedding. Did we talk about that last week? I don't think so. I can't remember. Okay, so I went to a wedding in Cancun. This is part of my family that's Bolivian. Super cool. Which is cool and fun. And they're like the most fun people. If you have a chance to make friends with Bolivian people, 
highly recommend it because a Bolivian wedding is a bomb. the most fun thing you've ever been to. Yeah. Yeah. So it was at that part of the night where, like, the wedding is starting to taper down at, like, you know, 9 to 10 p.m. Everybody's like, okay, we've been dancing for a couple hours. We'll sit down now. And then these girls come out in, like, full carnival outfits, like thongs, feathers, headdresses. Mm -hmm. And they start passing out, like, glow-in-the-dark stuff. And we're like, oh, that's fun. And then they pull out a limbo stick and a girl... In a, like, butterfly flowing costume on, like, 10-foot stilts starts coming out and pouring shots into people's mouths. Oh, hell yeah. And I want you to know that Eric finished in the top four in the limbo contest. So I saw a video, I think your mom posted, of his success and then his ultimate failure. Downfall, yeah. But it was amazing. I didn't know he was, I didn't know he was a limbo champ. I think he's only a limbo champ if he's, like, six shots in. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was he also a champion at the butterfly shot pouring in your mouth? He certainly was. Man, you can't. Eric is a good time. Catch him on the right night. Eric was having so much fun that the bride was, like, pulling him up on the dance floor to, like, teach him how to do bachata, like, Latina salsa dances. Oh, Eric. This is a whole new version of Eric that no one knows. I knew he had it in him, though. He was the life of the party. And the next day, everybody was like, your husband is fun. At the right wedding, Eric will bust a move. He certainly will. He busted a move at your wedding. At your wedding? At my wedding? At your wedding, he was a bop. Yeah. At my wedding, he was also, he was a dancing queen. Let's be clear. He's a wedding type of guy. You bring Eric to a celebration of love, he is there. He he is. To party. Yeah. He is. So that was really fun. Um, Congrats, Nicole and Rodolfo. It was a lovely wedding. Eric literally went up to the bride and groom and he was like, this is the most fun wedding I've ever been to. (laughs) Don't believe him. He says that to everybody. He does. (laughs) It looks so fun. Yeah, it was really fun. And your mom and dad went too, which is also always fun. My parents were there. I danced with my dad a lot. That was a good time. Yeah, it was really fun. And getting my dad to go to a wedding in Mexico is like not what you would expect because he's he he's not that guy. Fun. Yeah, you could tell. And he went and he had a blast. Yeah, it was good. So I got to spend some time with my um, extended family from Bolivia, which I haven't seen them in a really long time for obvious reasons. And it made me want to learn Spanish. So now Jess and I are both on our Duolingo journeys. Duolingo. <laughs> Duolingo is an easy app. Just kidding. It's not an app. Yeah, this is not an ad, but I actually do like the app. I love it. It's like fun. If you're dipping your toe into learning a new language, it's good. It is good. While we were at the wedding, I realized that there are broad swaths of my family that only speak Spanish. Yes. And it made me feel like an asshole because I'm walking up to my aunt who lived in Bolivia for her entire life. And I was like, I, I would really like to be able to communicate with my family members. Um, so, yeah. I have the this problem, and maybe you have it too. Like, I can understand a lot more than I can myself say. Yeah. Because in the moment, I forget how to conjugate verbs, or I for, I'm like, Ugh. yeah. But I know what... You get really panicky. <laughs> yes. And then yeah. you just say... Nothing. So that's what I'm really focused on is. I have too. And we're keeping each other accountable, which is important. We do 15 minutes every day. Yep. And I'm, we're on a, what, eight day streak? 
I think it's nine now. Or I might have started a day ahead of you. You may have started a day ahead of me, yeah. Because then I was like, learn Spanish. And you were like, done. (laughs) Sold. (laughs) I already wanted to. Yeah. So (laughs) so we're on our Spanish learning journey. That'll be great. And that's that's all our updates. Speaking of babies giving birth, let's do this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. So with literal birth approaching, for me, not for just everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you know, do you. Sydney and I wanted to do an episode on, like, fertility, IVF, and what is ultimately, like, assisted reproductive techniques. Sydney shared that uh, terminology with me, which made Mm -hmm. the journey for myself and Michelle possible. Um, So, as always, shout out to science. Thanks, science. Thanks, science. (laughs) I love that. For sure. (laughs) I love science. And we're going to cover, really, the history of IVF, uh, which is in vitro fertilization, But we're also going to cover a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of other things that go into a fertility journey or Mm -hmm. um, the assisted reproductive techniques that you go through. I can speak a little from my experience, but Michelle and I really just chose one way. There's like several ways for you to engage and embark on that. So it goes back like over half a century. Let's talk about what it is, the terminology today. So we'll get into like what goes into it today and then we'll go and like back in time yeah also before you jump into that shout out to Jess not only for sharing in this episode a ton about your own personal experiences but also you put this entire episode together and I think it was really well done thank you I had a spurt of energy and I said what should I do laundry or this episode and Podcast. I chose this episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love it, and I think everybody else will, too. Oh, thank you. Well, you did work on this, too, so shout out to Sydney. Barely. Um, Often people will just say IVF, and they'll, like, lump in IUI, all the other reproductive techniques together, and they'll be like, oh, I'm doing IVF, when actually they're not. Yeah. There are several distinct procedures. We're going to talk about them. Broadly, they're part of what's called the assisted reproductive techniques. Mm -hmm. So what is IVF? IVF is a complex series of procedures where mature eggs are collected from ovaries and fertilized by sperm in a dish. This is like the in vitro term. It means in glass. Mm -hmm. Then that embryo or the embryos, the zygotes, are transferred to a uterus. This process can be medicated with stimulants for the uterus or non-medicated Um, And just like on your own cycle, but the egg retrieval requires a ton of medicine shots. Mm -hmm. It's like contraceptives actually also are involved. Like there's a ton. Yeah. So let's get into the types of fertility processes that people can use on their journeys. So first, if you go to a physician for like a fertility evaluation, some of the things that that may include are, number one, blood work. This is almost always guaranteed, and that makes a lot of sense when you think about what's what you're trying to do. Right. In it's like blood- the first step. Yeah, exactly. They're going to be like, great, give me your six vials of your blood. Give like, me your literally. blood, maybe pee in this <laughs> cup. Yeah. 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 But that's basically guaranteed. So they're going to use that to check for hormonal abnormalities or potential genetic factors that could be contributing to infertility. They're going to use this to check your ovarian reserve and when or if you ovulate using your progesterone levels. That's a hormone that that they're checking for. They can also check uh, via your hormone levels your thyroid function and your prolactin levels, both of which can disrupt normal ovulation if they're too high or low. So hormone work is really important. 
Uh, ultrasounds are the second. Those are almost always guaranteed as well. They're going to use this to check the number of small follicles in the ovary, also known as the antral follicle count, to check the uterus and the ovaries for abnormalities such as fibroids and ovarian cysts also, which I think can contribute to um, fertility issues that, that people might be having. Yeah, and just a, just a trigger warning for people who might have under, undergone trauma, Those that ultrasound is often like a vaginal ultrasound. So it's not like on mm. your stomach. It's like internal yeah so just keep that in mind if you, like that's something that my first appointment I was like oh oh okay <laughs> like we're, we're doing mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was gonna you say ultrasound and you think like oh over the the belly well belly wand yeah. thing yeah no. no it's like a, a vaginal one yeah there's a lot of um the whole thing is gonna sound really uncomfortable yeah but it's so important like the um, vaginal ultrasound that I did story time like yeah. Showed that I had polyps in my right. uterus that I didn't know and you don't know about. Sure. And they ended up having to remove them before we did our transfer because they can actually disrupt the egg or the embryo like implanting. Oh, wow. And then they also tested them just in case like they weren't they cancerous, could be cancerous, but they could yeah. be. Yeah. Right. So they removed them, but they wouldn't know that unless they had done that specific type of ultrasound. Yeah. Okay. So that's really important for sure. Yeah. That's good to know. Thank you for sharing that for sure. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know why I said that so serious. Like I already knew the story, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was actually the scariest part of my whole experience was having those polyps <laughs> removed. Yeah. It's really stressful. And I feel like. Well, I never got under anesthesia. Right. That's the other thing. Yeah. So I was. Like, but I feel like hearing your personal stories are is really good because I feel like a lot of this stuff is so stigmatized, yeah, and not talked about in a normal way. And it's almost like hush hush. Like if you're going through IVF, people are weird and it's taboo, and like it shouldn't be because it's super. Com- We're gonna talk later about some stats and how common it is, but it's like super common. It's actually very hard to get pregnant naturally so if you can do that you're a superhuman (laughs) good congratulations yeah it's a really common to have to need help yeah Yeah. exactly so number three is semen analysis if you have a partner with semen or you are using sperm that hasn't undergone testing um you're gonna use this to determine the number shape movement all that needs to be normal in order for the semen to travel to the egg and and do its thing there um, number four is uh, HSG, also called a hysterosalpingogram. Mm-hmm. I practice mm-hmm. that, if you can tell. <laughs> and that's going to help the doctor check uh, for any blockages and show the path leading through your fallopian tubes. Yeah. Tell us I about did, it. I did you this. You did this. Yeah. I did not like this. It is a painful <laughs> procedure. Um, okay. Essentially... Like, what my experience was like is that they put a dye mm-hmm. into, like, with a scope into my uterus, a blue dye, so they could see. It, it. The cool part is, like, you can see, boom, all of the tubes, all of the, everything was fine. Yeah. But because they do it through your cervix and you're not, they, like, almost forced dilation a little bit. Mm. So it feels like you're having, like, they're like, oh, this kind of feels like a contraction. And it, I. Great. Yep. Mm-hmm. that's aggressive yeah but you could it was not it was uncomfortable yeah 
to say the least. <laughs> Every single like diagnostic procedure here or clinical procedure that we're going to talk about sounds at minimum uncomfortable, at maximum like painful. Yeah, it was not a great time. And then number five is a diagnostic hysteroscopy. So the purpose of this is to check your uterus for any potential like structural abnormalities that could be con contributing to infertility. And I looked this up because I was like, I have no idea what this even looks like. There's a lighted scope that looks like basically a long stick tube. Mm -hmm. And it's inserted into your uterus through your cervix to view the inside of the uterus in order to like check the structure of the inside. It's kind of like what they do with the colonoscopy. Yes, but it goes through your cervix. Before your, yeah, before. Yeah. And that sounds real uncomfortable. I, I, I would imagine they would put you out for that. I would hope so. Yeah. They told me for the um, polyp removal, I could choose whether or not to be <sighs> out. Why would anyone stay awake? I was like, oh, put me out. <laughs> Give me everything that you can uh, ahead of time. Yeah, literally. So those are all possibilities most of them are required really um but like what is IUI which is intrauterine insemination and that's different from IVF mm -hmm. um this is generally the first step of recommendations in a fertility journey for people who have this option specifically for people who um mm -hmm. are choosing to use like a person's egg and like a sperm sample versus like IVF, right. um, like for Michelle and I, was we used Michelle's egg and our, like, sperm donor, and then I'm carrying. So, like, that's why IVF worked for us. Right. But IUI is, like, cheaper, significantly so. Yeah. And for people who have, like, regular cycles that they can track and they can still use med medication, um, and then, like, a sperm sample, right? So, mm -hmm. sperm in this procedure is placed directly in the uterus to bypass the cervix and place the sperm closer to the egg and it basically increases the chances for creating an embryo. So instead of being like, you do this at home, put your feet up, good luck. Right. They like time you exactly to when your egg is like going to be there. Yeah. And they're like, come to the office at like 10, you need to be in the chair at like 10, 26 AM on a Friday. And then they put the sperm as close as possible yeah. to where the egg will be so that it increases the chances for fertilization. Right. Which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, like, logistically. Yeah. Egg drops, if the sperm is right there, great. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, it's less expensive, but not always as successful. It only has about a 10% chance of success per cycle. Yeah. But it does increase the number of healthy sperm that reaches an egg when ovulation is occurring. So there's there's a reason why this is, like, the first step also, because IVF is, like, a lot more intrusive. Um, yeah. This is more, like, pretty simple mm -hmm. here and but and then you have to like if you are someone who needs to buy sperm from a sperm bank you have to buy like several vials because they use like one sure at minimum but they like to use like two i believe oh. for each and they're expensive you pay per vial for your sperm okay that's good to know so unless you have like a sperm guy <laughs> which some people do BYOS <laughs> bring your own sperm yeah yeah but if you're purchasing it this is where it can get super pricey. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Then there's this process called IVC, which is intravaginal culture. 
and I didn't know about this. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it. But this is when the egg and sperm are placed in a device, and the device is positioned in the vagina for fertilization and incubation. After the incubation period, the doctor removes the device and transfers one or more embryos into the uterus. I've never heard of this before. I I was like, what is this? Um, this has like a 25% success rate per embryo. Huh. So, again, you're increasing your chances 10 to 25%. Right. Because of what we wanted to do, that's not something like we talked about, I guess. But in this process, fertilization and incubation occur in the body, in the actual body of the person who will be carrying the child. Yeah. For all of these processes, you go through a ton of testing, right? Ovarian reserve testing to understand the quality of your eggs. Semen analysis, if you need that. Um, and because IVF is not a uterus owner's situation only, and, like, fertility is not a uterus owner's situation only, you do, like, disease screening. Yeah. You do a practice transfer. You do, like, all these exams. And I really like that it, like, my research included, like, the sperm analysis because oftentimes, like, sperm have, like, broken tails or something. And that's actually the reason yeah. they're not getting pregnant. Sure, sure. There's lots of different reasons that uh, that people have fertility issues. Um, and all of those are relatively low tech, the ones that Jess was just talking about, which is not unsurprising because about 50% of the assisted reproductive technology that people use today are considered low tech. That can include hormone therapy, artificial insemination. So Jess talked about IUI. There's also a version of this where basically you you probably have heard it kind of disgust, disgustingly called the turkey baster method. You could do it at home. Where they basically take sperm into a, a pipette or a turkey baster or something and inject it directly into your vagina. You can literally have sperm shipped to your house. Right, right. And some people choose to do that, which is like more power to you. However, sperm meets egg, good for you. Right, right. And then there's IVF, which has about a 48% success rate. I saw, number one, these success rates are defined in clinical data as live births per cycle. Right. Um, So I saw this get higher in some sources because there have been lots of technological advances in recent years. And we should also say that as the maternal age increases, the success rate does decrease marginally, which is also the case for basically trying to create a pregnancy of any kind that's not a you know that's not really a secret right yeah there's a there's a clock people say there's a clock there's a clock unfortunately it sucks i did see that ivf was recently used in someone to successfully carry a pregnancy to term that was 66 yes it's like if you're everybody's journey is different more power to you everyone's journey is different and like my eggs could have been trash and it wouldn't have mattered because we weren't using them yeah michelle had like a great like michelle's like very fertile mm-hmm. <laughs> michelle had a lot of eggs yeah um and and my uterus like was like i'm ready right <laughs> and i i we have been ready <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it just like we got, you know, we had the right combination, but there's so many things that you can do to, like, prepare. Like, I have a friend who even um, did a medicated IVF transfer it didn't take and then did an unmedicated one, which then she also paired the unmedicated cycle with um, acupuncture, and it took. Oh, fascinating. And it's just, like... Things just happen like that. Your body is complicated. Yeah. Your body is complicated. 
That's the end of the episode. Yes, that's the that's the name of the episode for sure. I feel like in movies and stuff, they always try to make pregnancy seem like it's something that happens super easily and naturally and whatever. And it's just not always for everybody. So no. at the start of mm-hmm. an IVF cycle, there are hormones to stimulate the ovaries to produce eggs, as many as possible. In order to stimulate your ovaries, you might receive an injectable medication containing a follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, a luteinizing hormone, LH, or a combination of both. These medications stimulate more than one egg to develop at a time. So you probably know this, but if you're born with a uterus and all the equipment to produce eggs, then you're born with all of the eggs that you are ever going to produce in your lifetime. They're already there. They just have to mature and basically drop down. Fun fact, if you are carrying mm-hmm. a biological female as a baby, you're carrying already your grandchildren because the eggs That's so weird. are already there. Isn't That's that so, so weird. If your yeah. child chooses to have children in that way, then you're literally yeah. carrying the eggs that could be your grandchildren. And the average number of oocytes is like 40,000. So if you're carrying... A biologically female child, you have like 80,000 oocytes in you at any one time. <laughs> that's weird. Right. And that's why that's why hormone levels in people who are carrying like biological females are so oh, high. Interesting. And they're, they often have skin issues. There's oh, like okay. all this stuff because you're so many more hormones. I've actually heard that from a lot of people who have had um, daughters. They say like, when you're carrying a girl, you can tell because it's, like, way worse on your own body. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that's an old wives' tale, but also it's true. Um, do-do-do. Okay, so that process is called ovarian hyperstimulation that we just talked about, where you're producing, you're stimulating your body to produce more than one egg at a time. And that typically requires about 10 days of injections, um, depending. Yep. So that is, like, a process. Yeah. When your follicles are ready for egg retrieval, with tons of monitoring, you'll know exactly when that is, but it's generally between day 8 and 14. You take HCG, or human chorionic gonadotropin, to mature those eggs. That's called uh, OI, or ovarian induction. And typically, you're going through weeks of ovarian stimulation before the eggs are ready, and you know through this vaginal ultrasound and blood tests... You literally know, like, to the set, like, they tell you, take this shot at 7.02 p.m., and you need to come the next day for retrieval at 8.03. Yeah. Like, it's literally that specific. It's so precise now, yeah. I mean, which is awesome. It's, it's great. It's making this a lot more convenient. And Yes. So, for the egg retrieval, you are sedated. Um, they take a probe to identify follicles and then a thin needle is inserted. What I saw the term is transvaginally, mm-hmm. uh, to re- so basically through your, through your vagina to re- retrieve the eggs through your cervix. Um, the eggs are then removed from the follicles through a needle slash suction device. This involves like an ultrasound guided needle that pierces the vaginal wall to reach the ovaries. And that process takes between 20 and 40 minutes, depending on how many mature follicles are being retrieved at a time. Mm-hmm. And Michelle went through this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about her experience at all? I'll, I'll just say, like, her part of this experience, like, this 
egg retrieval was much more difficult than the implantation process. Okay. Her because you're pumping your body. I think she had over thirty shots in like wow for in two weeks. Like and and we're giving them at at home. Yeah. It was just very. It's a lot on your body, and you could feel it. Like she could feel the difference yeah but she was great after the like retrieval like they put you under and she's like amazing and then you know you feel great and especially because she had so many eggs like we were super lucky yeah um but i will say her process was on her like in a short amount of time it was like multiple shots a day yeah and you can't like work out there's like increased risk of like twisting your tubes like yeah Mm. so i i will just say people who have their eggs retrieved like that is a that's a real that's a hard process on your body yeah yeah it's intense yeah for sure yeah it it was like a lot it's a lot so if you have a partner who's going through that like be extremely sensitive and supportive yeah and supportive because you do not understand like i went through a different process and i'm happy to talk about mine in more detail but her, I felt like hers was much harder. Yeah. Um, like physically on her, even though I had shots for like, I had like over a hundred shots, Yeah. but I just had one a, pretty much a day. She had two to three in a shortened period. It was just, it's a, it's in a, a really condensed time. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. If you are using partner sperm, a semen sample needs to be provided at the doctor's office the morning of the egg retrieval. So... Mm-hmm. This can be done through masturbation or testicular aspiration, which is the use of a needle to extract sperm. And I didn't know about that. Um, I didn't either. That sounds terrible. Hopefully. Also, who would choose that one? <laughs> well, I guess like some like that's part of some of the problem, right? Is that they're not? Oh yeah, getting. I've like, heard of this good enough sperm um but that sounds terrible i I don't want to say the word ejaculation but i think i'm gonna have to so one of the things that i've heard is that there are parts of your body for some people who like when you release sperm through ejaculation it damages the sperm physically yeah and so in some a case like that i guess is when you would need something like testicular aspiration sounds terrible but that sounds terrible yeah (laughs) Donor sperm can be used as well, of course, and that's when you, like, purchase the sperm, and we just had ours, like, shipped to our fertility clinic, mm-hmm. so we never, like, received a bucket of sperm, mm-hmm. um, and that comes fully tested. Like, you know so much about, right? like, <laughs> the sperm. The person and the sperm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know a lot. Which is cool. It, it was cool, I think. Yeah. Um, after a period of time, you may have the opportunity to have the embryos hatch, quote unquote, and then you can do genetic testing after five to six days when the embryos mature to blastocyst to that stage. Mm -hmm. So we were like, hell yeah, let's like do genetic testing. We already have these like hatched embryos, which basically means that they're of, of better quality. Yeah. And then you test them and you really get to see like, what's the likelihood of them like sticking, implanting, growing like they they tell you a bunch of stuff with that yeah I want to talk a little bit more about the genetic testing because I went down a rabbit hole for this good so you may have heard of it called a pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or pre-implantation genetic screening it's a super cool and useful procedure that they now can commonly use uh, to determine which embryos have the highest chances of producing a successful pregnancy which is really cool super cool 
Um, it can also be used to rule out certain inherited diseases. Yep. Most commonly, some of the ones that they're looking for are cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, spinal muscular atrophy, Huntington's disease, and Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. So I think that's amazing. Um, some people have ethical issues with certain aspects of this. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading it, like, I get what they're saying technically, but I feel like it also does a ton to reduce human suffering. Yep. And a lot of people really benefit from it. Yeah. Um, so keep that in mind. Do some research if you're interested. I just wanted to jump down that rabbit hole a little bit because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like people get morally a little bit weird about um, PGD, and I feel like there's no reason to for the most part. Um, some people use it for things like family balancing because you can choose um, the sex of your embryo if you want. Yeah. Um, I don't think with modern science there's anything wrong with that. It's not like you're, like, picking, like, I want my child to have blue eyes. Like, give me all the blue eyes right, and exactly. throw away the rest of them. It's more like... Exactly. The way it was described to us was this is testing that can help you ensure successful pregnancy. Yes, and exactly. That's I the that's the key. Like that's what you want, right? Especially people who also, are at that point, right? Yeah. Also, like no um no disrespect to anyone who has like Huntington's disease, but I think if you could choose for your child not to have that, you would much rather. Yeah, you'd want to have that be the case. A, exactly. For sure. So great job, great rabbit hole. Oh no worries. For um fertilization. There are generally two methods. There's the conventional insemination, which mixes healthy sperm and mature eggs overnight, mm-hmm. or intracytoplasmic words, mm-hmm. science words, mm-hmm. sperm injection, ICSI, where a single healthy sperm is injected into each mature egg. Yeah. Then you have the transfer. This is done at a doctor's office or a clinic for IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have a mild sedative. I did turn up because I was stressed. They were like, ma'am, you need to relax. Sedate me always. <laughs> and it really helped. <laughs> the procedure is painless, like the um, mm-hmm. transfer. The embryo transfer, you can like be awake and your partner can be in the room. And, oh, like, that's so weird. You can like, watch them transfer yeah. the embryo. And we did, yeah. Mm-hmm. They insert, like, a long, thin, flexible tube catheter into the vagina through the cervix. Nope. Into the cervix through the vagina. Yeah. <laughs> the cervix comes after yeah. the vagina in biology, people. And then through into the uterus, a syringe with one or more embryos is suspended in some fluid and it's attached to the end of the catheter. And then the we saw this, like, being transferred into the room, too. It's, like, very cool. So interesting. Um. And then the embryo is placed in the uterus. And six to ten days later, the embryo will hopefully implant into the uterus. And that's when you have, like, your pregnancy testing. Mm -hmm. There are side effects of any procedure. Typical side effects could include passing a small amount of, like, clear or bloody fluid shortly after the procedure. Due to the swabbing of the cervix before the embryo transfer. Breast tenderness Mm -hmm. due to high estrogen levels because if you do a medicated, Mm -hmm. especially if you do a medicated transfer, um, bloating, cramping, constipation. And then they told me I couldn't like take a bath or go into a pool. So just keep that in mind. That makes sense, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But all of those side effects sound kind of terrible. I None of this is like a super comfortable process, but... 
I'm glad we're covering this because I think infertility is super shockingly common. Yep. And it's often a weirdly taboo topic. Yeah. But according to the CDC, about one out of every five people trying to conceive a child are unable to do so within a year. And that's the window that they consider infertility. Yep. 10 to 30% of infertility cases are considered unexplained. They usually have a suggestion of what's causing these, but like you literally, it just may not be working and you don't know why. Yep. So needing fertility assistance is super common. And this type of assisted reproductive technology has helped all kinds of people build the families that they are dreaming of. So I think that's really cool, and I'm super glad that we're covering this. Yeah. As part of your fertility process, you could also have surgery to correct medical conditions um, to give you a better chance of a successful pregnancy. Um, some of these surgeries might include a laparoscopy, um, which can be a diagnostic tool. It involves the insertion of a small lighted camera into your pelvic cavity, which allows your doctor to check for things like scar tissue, endometriosis, blockages that impact the fallopian tubes and ovaries. If there are any issues discovered during this, um, you might need an additional uh, surgical tool to correct the problem. We talked earlier about a diagnostic hysteroscopy, but there's also an operative hysteroscopy in where they use this basically long tube to remove any tissues or growths that may, may be interfering with fertility. Um, that can provide a view of fibroids, scar tissue, polyps, like what Jess was talking about, and abnormalities inside the uterine cavity. Anything to add there? Yeah, I had that done, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, but it was fine. Okay. And, like, the other thing that matters, too, is to know that all these things just happen. Yeah. Like, when my doctor was like, oh, you have a little polyp there. I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. He was like, no. Like, like almost everyone has It's a super polyp. common. Yeah. Like, they just are there. The only reason they ha- I had, I guess they could see, like, one or two. But when I went when I went under, he was like, oh, you had, like, a lot of little ones. Like, not a lot, but, like, maybe four. Yeah. And he was like, we just took them all out. And it's not... Because they were, like, doing anything wrong, per se. Right. And they also could have been removed naturally through, like, your period, through the through the shedding of the uterine oh. lining. They could just naturally come out. I didn't know But that. they only remove that kind of stuff just to increase the chances of, a, like, a s- successful implantation. Right. So after that happens, you, you like, let your uter- – you let everything heal. So you have that done. Yeah. You're like, oh, I've been waiting forever, right? And you have to wait more. But it's actually – to make sure your your uterus is, like, pristine. Yeah. And, like, in the best place to, like, embed the embryo. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like, I don't know, this is super common. I feel like the reason that we need to talk about it more is because society really pressures women. And mm. so much of that is on your, like, ability to have kids and your desire to have kids and things like that. And I feel like talking about how common these things are is so important because there are so many people that struggle with this. Yeah. So it's like just your body, like your body does stuff like we don't know. Right. Like how how should you know? Yeah. And it's a personal journey that I feel like people really like to get up in your shit about. Oh, yeah. But it's about you and your body and what's possible for you. Especially like as Michelle and I have discovered, people get real asky 
they're like how are you having a baby yes (laughs) you and this woman right they want to know everything about it which is fine like for someone like me who i will talk about on this podcast right i don't really care right but like (laughs) it not everybody wants to answer all these questions right people get really intrusive for sure yeah people do so keep that in mind but also it's like it should be an open topic to talk about fertility issues because it's so freaking common but also yes when this is a personal journey stay out of people's shit <laughs> yeah we sorry we got way off topic here but Oof. <laughs> i i love that tangent i'm glad we had it me too um number three the another type of procedure is a myomectomy and that refers to the removal of uterine fibroids it's some sometimes called a fibroidectomy and then a laparotomy is number four. If a minimally invasive procedure like the lap- laparoscopy is not feasible, then your doctor may recommend this. It's a major surgery performed under general anesthesia on an inpatient basis, um, meaning you will be spending a little bit of time in the hospital. But it's basically to to do the same things, make sure that you're ensuring the most successful pregnancy possible. Yeah. So... There's all the medical stuff. Now let's get into the history of how we got to where we are now with, like, all these options. For sure. And the story starts with Walter Heap, who is a doctor and a professor at the University of Cambridge. Not anymore. I said is, but was. Was. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Who was doing research on reproduction in animals. And he reported the first successful embryo transfer in an animal in 1891. Which is crazy. It's kind of crazy. It's also, like, Sir... Weren't there other things you could have been studying at the time? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, for anyway, other doctors and scientists followed suit with Gregory Goodwin Pincus and Ernest Vincez mm-hmm. attempting to perform IVF in rabbits. So, rabbits were like, they multiply really easily. So, people were like, oh, yeah, let's yep. try these rabbit situations. That resulted in a pregnancy. At first, but then later it was discovered that the pregnancy started with the without the assistance of IVF or like any of their procedures. It's, they were just rabbits having rabbit babies. Having rabbit sex, yeah. Rabbits are super fertile, so maybe not the best <laughs> subjects. I know. Or maybe the best, I don't know. Medical researchers first identified female fertility hormone estrogen in 1923. In 1929, they discovered progesterone. These are, like, really important hormones for fertility, so. Right. In 1943, yes, that's the word. Okay. In 1943, hormone supplements were developed, which is crazy. It is crazy. Um, I actually read a little bit more about this. Progesterone therapy has a ton of really cool uses. Yes. Um, but it is really hard to come by naturally, so they tried it in animals and in like people donors and they were like there's no way we're going to get enough of this to treat a, a big population of people and then in 1943 there was this chemist named russell marker at penn state who figured out how to extract progesterone from wild mexican yams these are crazy yams <laughs> big old yams make progesterone and you can extract it and like commercially produce it from these yams it's a really, it's a super interesting story, and um, they started basically using it immediately after that for hormone therapy, which is cool. And I will say, I was on progesterone. I had this is I had a hundred over a hundred shots of progesterone. Mm-hmm. The shots sucked, but I felt great on progesterone. Yeah, 
You were like, give me them yams. <laughs> give me them yams. Like, <laughs> um, IVF was used in the 50s, in the 1950s, via medical testing and observing animals. In 1959, the first birth of a non-human occurred through IVF. And in 1978, the world's first baby conceived mm-hmm. by IVF was born. Now IVF is a clinical treatment, which assists couples create to create families that they want to all over the world. But that's crazy. Like, it feels like in 1978, it's like a long time ago, but like also it's not. It's not that long ago when you think about it. Um, so John Rock was the first to extract intact fertilized eggs. In 1948, Rock and Miriam Menken retrieved over 800 oocytes, and 138 of those were exposed to sperm in vitro. Those are some brave people. I, I'm so glad you said this. I would not have volunteered for that process. I would not either. Okay, imagine, like, it already feels really intrusive and yeah. painful now. Imagine what it was like in 1948. Hell no. I would not have. No. Same. Nope. Big nope energy. They published those findings in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, following that, Anne McLaurin and John Biggers published a paper about how they had grown mouse embryos in vitro and then transferred them into female mice, which was a, a huge landmark paper at the time. Imagine doing, like, mice and <laughs> IVF. Like, that's weird. Like, it's so tiny, tiny, tiny IVF. It's teeny tiny and very weird, I would guess. Um, so then the first pregnancy using in vitro methods in humans was reported in the Lancet from Monash University in Australia through the team of Carl Wood, John Leeton, and Alan Trusson. This was completed in 1973. The pregnancy did not last to term, so they called it a biochemical pregnancy. Um, Steptoe and Robert Edwards started work on human IVF research in 1968. And then in 1977, they carried out a pioneering conception, which resulted in the birth of the world's first baby to ever be conceived by IVF. Uh, her name was Louise Brown. She was born July 25th, 1978, in Oldham General Hospital in Greater Manchester, United Kingdom. She's celebrating her 44th birthday this year. So just to put into perspective how new this technology is, the first baby born via IVF just turned 44 which is wild literally yeah so 78 days after the first IVF baby was born in England the second ever IVF baby was born in India after a really interesting Indian researcher and physician independently developed a method yeah in the late 1970s a physician from Kolkata India Subhash Sydney's gonna help me with the last name Mukhopadhyay <laughs> looked it was up performing his own experiments yeah Shout out to Sydney for always knowing the words <laughs> and me for never. So Subash was performing his own experiments with instruments and a fridge, mm-hmm. like on his own, which resulted in a, quote, test tube baby. We don't like that term, Mm-mm. but at the time that was like accurate. That's how they described it. Um, named Durga, who was born in October of 1978. State agencies prevented him from presenting his work. So he was, like, not recognized by international science communities for what he accomplished for a long time until recently. Which sucks. Yeah. During the 80s, IVF would become much more mainstream, probably because it was, like, what is happening. Yeah. By 1986, over a 1,000 children were born via IVF. So 
times are changing. For sure. Since these like huge achievements, science has really made advancements in the field, right? We now have stimulated cycles. Yeah. With all these medicines, um, HCG to control the time to control and time egg maturation, which is like a huge part of getting all the eggs out and making sure they're ready to actually be like made into embryos with sperm. Right. Another step forward in using IVF as a clinical treatment was the discovery that gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, uh, GnRHA, could be used to, to control and time oocyte maturation, which helps a lot with uh, fine-tuning the time of, of collection. And that decreases the need for monitoring by preventing premature ovulation. So it's like Jess was saying, this basically enabled them to time it like you need to be in the chair at 8.03 a.m. and we'll do the egg collection. Yeah. Literally, it's like that. In addition to the use of the oral contraceptive pill, which allows for the scheduling of IVF cycles, that makes treatment far more convenient for both staff and patients because you can decide when things are going to happen. In 1983, Alan Trusson and Linda Moore repeated the fir- reported the first pregnancy that used a previously frozen embryo. And while that one wasn't carried to term, that ability improved the feasibility of IVF significantly. And then in December of 1983, the first baby was born using this method, and they, they were actually twins. And then in 1986, Christopher Chen reported the first pregnancy with frozen eggs that was carried to term. Frozen sperm had been done for a while, but this was totally different and allowed people with eggs to undergo, like if they were going undergoing radiation for cancer or menopause and still have children using their own eggs afterward. And sidebar, we should absolutely do an episode on freezing your eggs because... Number one, we had a listener actually ask for that specifically, but also it's just a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Egg donation is another step in the process. In eight, uh, 1983, the first pregnancy occurred through egg donation. And in the U.S., the first child born from egg donation was in 1984. So the 80s were a huge time for this, and it's only been getting better and easier and safer since then. Yep. Obviously, there's a lot to know about IVF, fertility, all the information that we've provided here. The procedures are constantly being upgraded, but we think it's really beautiful that families can be created from partners how exactly how they want it to be. Yeah. It's 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 a whole thing, but now now you know. <laughs> you know more than you did before. For sure. <laughs> We hope you love this episode, and that's what we know about that. <laughs> and that's what we know about that. A reminder, mm-hmm. we are not putting out episodes in May. Don't be mad. It's fine. We'll put them out in June. We'll be back in June. Um, if you have a recommendation for an episode you'd like us to cover, you should DM us on Instagram, Malpractice Podcast, or email us, malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing and we're giving you valuable information, don't forget to leave us a review wherever it is that you like to listen to podcasts. Happy almost mom time to Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> Happy almost mom life. Right. So thank you for your patience with us during these big uh, life-changing times. And as always, don't forget, malpractice Malpractice makes makes perfect. perfect. Bye. Bye.